How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. As you know, we are in the middle of a series previously recorded at the Dave Ramsey Conference Center here in the Nashville, Tennessee area. But due to some technical difficulties, Michael had to go back into the studio to record today's teaching. So it's going to sound a little different than our earlier episodes because he's not teaching in front of a live audience, but the content is just as good. Also, just to remind you, this Thursday, our second special edition episode will be released. And just trust me, you want to listen to Daniel and Jamie Hurd's story. But now, here we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. After college and grad school, I was trying to serve as a pastor. And I quickly realized I did not know anything about leadership. I thought I knew a little bit about being a pastor, but I didn't know anything about leading. Sure, I'd led different things, but I didn't know what I didn't know, what's often called unconscious incompetence. So I did what any student does. I started to learn. I started reading books on leadership, lots of books. I think I possess over a hundred titles in the field of leadership on my shelves. Of course, I attended conferences. I talked to people. I sought out other advisors and elders and mentors. I became a student of leadership. Like many things, as you burrow down into a subject, you find lots of principles, lots of theories, and you start to aggregate. You start to develop a list or some theories or a philosophy of these things. But it was one definable moment. A former professor told me, Only you can make yourself a leader. The light went on. No one was going to hold my hand. No matter how much reading or studying or coursework I did in the area of leadership, I had to become a leader. Yes, principles are transferable. We need to learn certain key principles of leadership. But at the end of the day, an individual has to choose. You or I have to decide If I want to be a leader, I've got to take certain steps. I've got to learn to implement certain things. Now, this applies pretty much to any area of life. If you want to be a musician, only you can take lessons and only you can practice. If you want to be a woodworker, only you can take the initiative to find a wood shop, to find a teacher, to learn how to work with materials, to learn how to work with tools. The same goes with painting, being a healthcare professional, even being a great mom or dad, or if you want to be a financial success, only you can do it. On the one hand, we all need the gifts and the talents and the interest to do certain things, but those things given to progress, you and I have to get up and do something about it. Indeed, you might say you have to crave it. Or, 
it will pass you by with a yawn. How much more are spiritual lives? How much more is our growth in becoming the men, the women Christ wants us to be linked to our involvement, our active involvement in growing as a believer? We're shown the way. We have so much information in our fingertips, on our handheld devices, on our notebook computers, on our desktop computers, on our phones. There is more information available now than has ever been. Yet the relationship that God has with man that is available to each one of us, only you and I as individuals can choose to grow, can choose to learn, can choose to become a maturing believer. In our study in 1 Peter, we come to chapter 2, the first three verses today, and we'll see three broad stroke aspects of growth. Now, as I read the first three verses, I want to note there's an imperative clause, long for. It might be better to keep in your mind and mind the idea of craving something, longing to see somebody. Well, let me read these first three verses, and you'll hear the phrase, Long for the pure milk of the word. First Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. First Peter gives us the need for growth. In one short sentence, he lists five different areas that expose sinful attitudes that need our personal attention. The primary participle, putting aside, chapter 2, verse 1, therefore putting aside, is the idea of laying aside a dirty garment. In fact, it's the same phrase you use in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, when the people that are stoning Stephen lay aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So we're to lay aside these five areas that reveal our sinful attitudes. They are malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Let's look at them one at a time very briefly. First of all, putting aside malice. Malice is a word we don't think about a lot in our English vocabulary. It means to be mean-spirited or have a vicious attitude towards someone, maybe just ill will. Paul used it in Ephesians chapter 4.31, put away from you along with malice, the idea of putting it aside again. Again, in Colossians 3.8, Paul wrote, but now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, there's our word, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. We are to Put aside this mean-spirited, vicious attitude, uh, wishing ill will on others. First of all, put aside our malice. Secondly, put aside deceit. Now, deceit, we know what that means. It's taking advantage of someone underhandedly. It's treachery. It's a deliberate attempt to lie, to mislead people. Peter used it in chapter 222 again, and this is a quotation from Isaiah 53, 9. Jesus is described as the one who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. No deceit found on Christ's lip. You know, there's no place for deception out of the believer's mouth. James refers to how difficult it is to tame the tongue. 
yet there's not a one of us as a follower of Christ that knows there's never a place for lying, for shading the truth, for little white lies, for being deceptive, and here especially with the idea of taking advantage of someone. It's always better to take the high ground. It's always better to tell the truth. Putting aside, number one, malice. Putting aside, secondly, deceit. Third, putting aside hypocrisy. Interesting that along with envy and slander in Peter's list, these are plural nouns. Think of it, every kind of hypocrisy. Now, no surprise to our English ear, the word upokrisis comes into English hypocrisy. The idea of play-acting, or really a pretense. Jesus had some pretty hard words to the groups of scribes and Pharisees he encountered. In Matthew chapter 23, 28, he exposes this. He said they have outwardly appeared to be righteous men, but inwardly they're full of hypocrisy. It's not just they're hypocrites on occasion. They're full of hypocrisy. In Luke 12, verse 1, Jesus warned the disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So both times Christ is pointing out these egregiously offensive religious leaders who at their core are full of pretense. We are to put aside hypocrisy. Fourth, we're to put aside envy. First, malice. Second, deceit. Third, hypocrisy. And now fourth, envy. That's an easy one again for our Western mind. It's being jealous of other people. It's an interesting term that Christ used in Mark chapter 15:10 when he referred to Pilate that he was aware that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. And again, we see this group of scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, religious leaders who were at core envious of the success and attention that Jesus was garnering. Finally, the fifth thing we're to put aside is slander. Literally, the word means talking down or running a person down. Peter mentions that Christians were treated this way by their enemies in chapter 3, verse 16. And so all the more, we should avoid slander. Now, if we were to note in passing the comprehensive nature of these, three times we read all malice, all deceit, all slander, And each of these begins with our hearts and ends with a spoken word. These attitudes are contrary to the love of family, to the love of God, to the love of the family of God. As a family, love is not malicious but encouraging. As a family, love is not deceitful but speaks the truth. As a family, love is not hypocritical, but it does the right thing in the right way. As a family, love is not envious, but what we rejoice in others' successes. And fifth, as a family, love is not slandering. We don't speak ill of other people. We don't talk them down or run them down. Now, a lesson for you and certainly for me here as I review these, these are ongoing. Which of these can you and I say, number one, I'm pretty susceptible to this one. I'm susceptible to being mean-spirited, malice. I'm susceptible to little white lies, to being deceptive, which is really a bold-faced lie, not just a little white lie. I'm susceptible to being a hypocrite, to living with pretense, saying one thing but yet doing another. I'm susceptible to being envious of others. I'm susceptible to slander, to speaking ill of others. 
The I, me, my of self is ever watchful in our hearts. The antidote to me, and this does encourage me, it's not simply a matter of stopping these things. In fact, as we've said many times before, Scripture just doesn't say stop sinning, and we go, oh, okay, no problem. But we're given a redirection, we might say, of what it means to live holy, what it means to live as a growing believer. Well, first of all, Peter marks out that we need growth. He begins with this overriding participle, put aside these five things that are evident of sin. But in the second verse, secondly, we see a longing for growth. We need to grow, but do you and I long to grow? Again, verse 2, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Remember, the term long, let's think of it as crave, and it's imperative here. It has the weight of a command. Now, the metaphor is super simple, yet it's different from how Paul used it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, or how the author of Hebrews uses it in chapter 5, verses 12 to 13. Where there, we have a contrast with milk that's fit for babies versus meat or solid food that is fit for those who are no longer children. Peter's not making that comparison and contrast here. Peter is simply saying an infant craves, an infant longs for milk. The term newborn babies is found only here in our New Testament. This is another good case where careful Bible study saves us from interpretational error. Look at the context very carefully. You know, Cindy and I have a precious new grandson, and one thing that boy longs for is the bottle or his mama. If he is unhappy, if he is hungry, he craves for that milk. Do you and I crave? Do we long for the pure milk of the word? Now, some connect Peter's words to Jesus' teaching, that the kingdom of God is received as a child. That's a childlike faith. That's a faith that believes. But the adjective pure here is a little different, and it stresses the unadulterated word of God. To promote growth, we need a longing, we need a craving for the pure milk of the word. Many translations choose pure spiritual milk. The New American Standard chooses pure milk of the word for good reason. The only occurrence of this word in the New Testament is found in Romans 12.1, your spiritual service of worship. So while the term is word here, or spiritual in Romans 12.1, 1 Peter is not technically referring to the Bible. It does not exclude the pure milk meaning from Scripture. Note, pure stands in contrast to the list Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. The pure milk of the word. All growth comes from God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. We need the pure spiritual milk of, I would say, the word of God to grow. You nor I can grow apart from the unadulterated truth of God's word. The objective in verse 2 is that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Growth, physical and spiritual, are normal outcomes of a healthy diet. 
when we have a child who is not prospering, who's not growing, we get concerned about his or her caloric intake, whether they have some health issue. We rush them to the pediatrician. We talk to our friends. How do I know that my son or daughter is gaining weight? Because growth is a normal outcome of a healthy diet. Again, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5.14 writes, but speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects of him who is head even Christ. Later in 2 Peter chapter 3, the apostle will write in verse 13, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To grow in salvation does not suggest some Armenian view, but rather, now that we have been saved, are we growing and maturing in that salvation? Simply put, growth means change. Growth in the sense presupposes good change, that we see a little reigning in of our temptations. We see a a substantial change in our appetites for money, sex, and power, that we're growing as we're following Christ. Well, Peter in this section is talking about, first of all, a need for growth. Secondly, a longing. Do we long for this like a babe longs for the pure milk of the word? And then thirdly, he gives us the motivation, verse 3, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. The need for growth, the longing for growth, and now the motivation for growth. Well, first, let's talk about the grammar here a bit. If you have tasted is grammatically connected to the imperative verb long for. Believers, like that hungry, nursing infant, longs for God's word. The simple word, if, causes a lot of discussion and debate among Bible students. Not to get too lost in the syntactical weeds, but you might be familiar with different conditional clauses. You might have heard of a first-class conditional clause, second-class, third-class, and so on. Our English translations reflect the challenge of this. Listen to the way a number of translations render it. The New American Standard, of course, says, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. The NIV translates it, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. The ESV translates it, if indeed, now that word indeed is not in the Greek text, they add that, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And the Net Bible renders it, if you have experienced the Lord's kindness, and so on. So you can see our English renderings have a tough time with the syntax of this little word, if. Thomas Schreiner, I think, sums it up very well. Peter wanted the readers to contemplate whether they, in fact, experienced the kindness of the Lord. And he was confident the answer would be yes. Translating the term if by now or since, now that you've tasted or since you've tasted, he continues, short circuits the process, removing the contingency that the author wanted his readers to consider. The last phrase, he alludes to Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Don't miss the obvious. As an infant longs for the pure milk, And now he says, taste, get a taste of it. Peter will reference this psalm again 
in chapter 3, verse 10, suggesting to me that it may have been a very special psalm to Peter. A study of chapter 34 of the psalm reveals that David is on the run, not unlike Peter's readers. They were living in a land that was not their home. They were persecuted and they were on the run. This would be a great devotion for you this week to take Psalm 34 and study it every day for five days in a row. It would be an encouragement to you as you understand how God's word meant, perhaps in Peter's mind, a lot to him for this reference. Well, in these three verses, we find a very simple message. Believers should long for the Lord if we've tasted his kindness. If you're a believer, a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you and I should long for the Lord if we've tasted his kindness. So do you long for him? Do you crave time with him? Do you crave time in his word, or is it an obligation or a bore or tedious or hard to understand? And as a side note, as you have tasted the Lord at his word, do you see that it is good for you? Now, if you and I don't long for, don't crave, don't want to grow, let me give you a couple of considerations. Number one, perhaps you've never truly embraced Jesus Christ. We might have grown up with Christianity all around us. We might have grown up going to church a lot, but we never owned our personal salvation. Maybe it was our parents. Maybe it was an influential adult in our lives. It's not uncommon for teenagers to grow up in a good Christian home, knowing the language early on, Sunday schools, Uh, church programs, student programs, Awana programs, Pioneer, all kinds of different programs. We get the lingo, but we haven't grasped salvation. Sometimes that comes to fruition in college when a young man or woman is now finally on his or her own and they have to sort through what they believe. The same can be true no matter how old you are, whether you're a teenager or in your 70s or 80s. Have you truly embraced the person and the work of Jesus Christ in your place, on your behalf, instead of you. That would be a presupposition. That would be a prerequisite for whether or not you wanted to grow and long to grow, spend time in his word. Secondly, we can be calloused. Anger, resentment, disappointment. If you or I suffer from injustice, if people have hurt us, if we're living in sin, We will lose our appetite for what is wholesome. We will lose our appetite for God, for his word, for Christian people around us. Maybe we're spiritually malnourished. Maybe we're out of shape and indolent. We have no appetite for the pure, unadulterated word. I received a prayer email from a friend very recently. He mentions a list of items and praises, and then he notes some significant health issues. He suffers from a number of issues, including Parkinson's, which is slowly worsening. He reports celebrating his 70th birthday, mentioning that all his family came to see him, as well as dear friends, and that they hosted a little party for him. And then he concludes with this. At this point in life, I'm increasingly aware of feeling a deep thankfulness to God for innumerable blessings and for the privilege of being able to serve him each day. Also, except for my medical concerns, 
I feel very well, which is another reason for thanksgiving. Great perspective. He's tasted of his kindness. This letter, to me, is both convicting and encouraging. Do you long for the pure, unadulterated word of God? Do you long for time with him? Finally, let me suggest, not to make you feel guilty or to shame you, but to encourage you. If you don't long, if you don't crave, if you have no desire or interest for this diet, can I suggest something really obvious and simple? Just tell him. Just acknowledge it. You could do it as simply as this. Dear Father, I confess, I admit, I acknowledge I have no appetite for the word. I have no interest in you. It's not that I'm hateful or or unkind or intending to be mean or indifferent. I just don't have an appetite. Will you forgive me? And more importantly, will you help me? I know you'll forgive me, but I need your Spirit's help. And may your word, impressed upon me by your Spirit and encouraged along with your people, help me to grow and to long and desire to be that man, that woman that you want me to be. And I pray this hopefully, expectantly, that you'll help me. In Christ's name, amen. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.